All right, so this is how we're going to do this section. If you have a question that you would like to ask either Tyson or Adam, you can just raise your hand and tell me the number question you want to ask and to which person, and then I'll say the question on the mic since we're recording it. That way people at home listening in um, live on their couch right now uh, will be able to know which questions we are talking about and who's answering them. So to save you from having to pass mics around, we'll handle it that way. Anna. Then we'll do that at the very end. Okay. So anybody have a question they want to get us started with? Alex. For Tyson, what does it mean for you to love your wife like the church? It's funny because when I read this, I actually don't know what it's like to love like the church because I think it's I think it was supposed to mean what does it mean to love my wife like Christ loves the church? Yeah. Okay. If that's the case, then uh, it's just like him in Ephesians five. Like it was a trick question, and he got it. <laughs> Ephesians five. That's the uh, the passage there that outlines kind of the the mindset that we should have towards our spouses in light of the mindset that Christ had towards us. So. <clears throat> Ultimately, the willingness to lay down my life for Sarah in a physical sense is how that could be taken literally, but in a more day-to-day sense, like I should be living my life in such a way to, to lay down myself before her, and like Philippians 2 talks about, to consider her needs above my own, and to really just cherish and treasure her <clears throat> with Christ as my model, thinking about how, to the extent of what he did for the church, and how far he went um, to the point of shedding his own blood. Um, for us, and so in the same way, I'm to take up that mindset, the mind of Christ, and to love her in a similar way. I think that it can um, work itself out in a, a variety of different ways as we're more sanctified each and every day, but that's kind of the, I think that's what it means, is to have Christ as our head and as our example, and follow it, and to seek to ultimately, like Adam's taught us in the past, to hooper echo uh, by considering her needs above my own and laying down myself underneath that. And then something that we've talked about before, too, uh, that kind of goes along with that question, is sometimes we have to fight to love our families, specifically our wives, like we love the church, too, because sometimes we can be so invested in you guys and wanting to see you grow spiritually that maybe there's not a whole lot left over at home um, for that same type of uh, interaction and that same type of engagement meaning we have to be careful that our wives don't see us investing so much in the lives of people in our church spiritually and yet failing to do that at home. And so that's something that we're always striving to do as well, to make sure that our our families receive the same type of attention and investment that we're seeking to put into our church family as well. Somebody else with a question? Dave. 31, what counsel would you offer someone who was doubting their salvation? Um, well, I mean, I think the first step you should take is to say, what type of fruit do you see in your life? I mean, if if you're professing to be a Christian, then there obviously needs to be fruit in your life. So it can be as small as, um, you know, I... Um, you know, I want to know more about God, or uh, it can be as small as, you know, I'm fighting this area of sin in my life. But there needs to be some type of fruit in the life of a believer, because the last thing I want to do is give someone a false assurance of salvation. 
And so we need to start at the beginning of, do you consider yourself a believer based on, are you fighting sin in your life? Are the things of God alive to you? Um, and for the most part, if we're having a conversation about whether you feel like you're saved or not, I mean, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation if you weren't worried if you were saved or not. And so that's a good place to start. But the next step is, do, is there fruit in your life that you see? Is Essentially, is the Holy Spirit working inside of you? Uh, um, and uh, has, has the Holy Spirit created desires within you for the things of God? And so that's where I would look. And if those, those things are true, then we can start taking steps into, um, you know, uh, what else needs to be, or what areas of your life do we need to focus in on? And it may be as simple as, as, simple as just, uh, you know, studying God's Word and seeing the truth of who God is, because a lot of times there's not truth necessarily behind someone who's struggling with if they're saved or not. You know, as Adam's taught, you know, faith is trusting in truth, and so if you, there's no truth to trust in, then we've got to start with getting some truth. So if I'm having a conversation with someone about if they feel like they're saved or not, you know, we're going to start with, is there fruit in your life? Do you desire the things of God? And if you do, then let's start looking into God's word. Let's start getting some of that truth to trust in um, so that, uh, you know, essentially you can grow in your faith. Um, and I think that there are times when even those of us who are, uh, you know, more mature in our salvation doubt our salvation um, and I think that that doubt is very easily quenched when you look back, when you're able to look back on your life and see the fruit uh, of the Holy Spirit working in your life, uh, you know, over a period of time. Um, so it wouldn't necessarily just be someone who was young in their faith who would struggle with if they're a believer or not, but as a mature believer, being able to look back on my life and see God's faithfulness in my life, see... Uh, areas of my life where I've grown in, I'm, I, I'm able to uh, be confident in what God has done in my heart, uh, what He's done in my life, what the Holy Spirit's doing in my life because of those, because of that evidence that's in my life. Next question. Yep. Thirty-three. What is your view on Christian freedom regarding areas not prohibited in Scripture, specifically the use of alcohol and tobacco? Um, I feel like it could be else in that blank uh, other than alcohol and tobacco. Uh, anything else that's not um, clearly stated in Scripture, um, such as um, I don't know. Yeah, tattoos or something as simple as just maybe eating. Yeah. What? Okay. Yeah. So my point is, um, if it's not clearly stated in Scripture, we can abuse anything, and the abuse of those things, I think, is where we have to draw the line. So for me personally, I don't drink alcohol. But I'm not opposed to someone who does, as long as they do it in a responsible way. Um, I, I wouldn't feel uh, awkward if I was in a setting where there were other people who were drinking. 
unless there was someone who was in that setting who was fighting against alcoholism, um, I would feel uncomfortable for that person because they're struggling with alcohol. And so if I were, if, if I drank alcohol, I would say, I'm not going to drink in front of this person. I'm going to, you know, like James talks about looking out for the weaker brother. Um, I'm not going to do something that's going to cause someone else to struggle in their sin. And his sin wouldn't be that he drinks alcohol, but the abuse of alcohol. Um, tobacco, you know, I'm not, um, the, you know, I'm not opposed to it. I don't smoke. Um, I don't like the way it smells. Um, but I also don't like the smell of someone's breath after they've thrown down a Budweiser, you know. Um, but, I mean, I'm not opposed to someone drinking a buddy. Um, <laughs> same thing with the tattoos, you know. Um, I'm just going to be open. I've considered getting one at some point. Um, I'm just not sure. I don't have a design that I like yet. Maybe like a butterfly or something <laughs> on my lower back. <laughs> um so uh, I may have been too transparent right then. <laughs> Is that? Okay, cool. Cool. Next question. Tyson, how can a father discipline his children without discouraging them? How does he balance grace within that? And you may not have had a lot of experience with your kids, but you're going to have more experience moving forward in career, potentially, with this. Because this is something that I face constantly in having to discipline kids uh, without discouraging, but also finding a, a balance of grace within that. So, any thoughts that you have currently on, on that? This is a hard question. When I read it, I was kind of thinking, hopefully we won't get through all these until we get to that one. <laughs> no, no, it's good. Uh, like he said, I don't have a lot of experience in disciplining those underneath my immediate care, uh, whether it's the authority of the father figure or authority of a classroom. I don't have anyone underneath me at work to, to do this. Um, with Macy, you know, we're learning. Um, we can't really communicate grace verbally to her right now to where she can understand that. And so as Adam's saying, maybe thinking ahead in the future, it's definitely going to be a balance because it's my tendency just in my personality to kind of come hard and to um, really, I guess, be focused on the law keeping aspect of do's and don'ts and stuff. Okay, you violated that. Now here comes punishment. But obviously that's not how we are operating now in the new covenant as far as it relates to um, us being freed from the law. And so I want to be able to be faithful to communicate grace, but I also, I also know that um, Hebrews talks about God lovingly disciplining his kids for their good. So I know that it's good to be hard in certain ways, um, but I don't really have a lot of wisdom as to, as to what this looks like yet. Um, we're trying to figure it out as we go, especially with our kids, and I'll definitely be trying to um, have a better perspective about this. I've actually have it penciled down to talk to Adam about this as far as teaching, because you could really, you know, make or break your career by how you choose to, to handle this issue. And I'm unfortunately, because of my experience, a little, um, ignorant, but not unwilling to learn and to blossom in this area as well. 
Next question. Yep. What are some key instruments that God uses in the sanctification of a believer? Um, key instruments. Number one, like I've already mentioned when we were talking about the role of the local church, I would say that the local church is a key instrument um, as a um, kind of like the main point and the sub points underneath that would be that he uses the accountability that flows out of the local church to sanctify us. He uses a, as another sub point um, the discipline that happens within a church for our sanctification and keeping us in and holding us. He also mainly priority uh, uses his his word. Um, he does that in our own personal life, but still under the same heading. It would be that he uses the uh, the teaching of God's word in in the time when it's taught, whether formally on Sunday mornings or throughout the, the week um, in our relationships, to really grow us and move us. So I think the local church is a huge instrument by which we are sanctified. Um, for me, I also believe that he uses your family. Um, and how you're learning to interact with one another and you're learning to lay down your life and to to really consider each other's needs above your own. Like my marriage is a primary instrument for God to sanctify me. Now being a dad is a primary instrument for God to sanctify me. Um, so kind of like church or our family here and our family at home. And then I would also say our workplace. Um, if for some of us that's different than the other two. Our workplace is another instrument by which God uses that. And all this is obviously application and how it works out horizontally. But coming from the understanding, obviously, that God's word is the primary tool in which we learn and grow as the Spirit uses that and works out sanctification in our life. But I'd say those three areas were things that I thought of when I read the question. Um, and they're all ways that I can either submit and yield to God's working in that or I could kind of be resistant to that. And depending on how I choose to have a proper perspective, as Adam usually teaches me to have at work, will determine how much and to what rate I grow um, in those areas. Next question, Ben. How does your use of money reflect your commitment to not be mastered by it or be selfish with it? Um. For most of you who know me, I uh, I'm not a big spender. I don't uh, I don't make like impulse purchases. Um, it's not it's not really my personality necessarily. It's definitely not Jen's. And so between the two of us, you know, we're able to make you know good uh, decisions as far as what we buy and how we use our money. Um, I, I owe him some money. I just remembered. <laughs> So even then, like I don't even realize that he. Has <laughs> You've been money. hounding me for it. <laughs> um, you know, there are obviously things that we're saving up money to make purchases for. Um, I mean, I, I don't. Uh, very, very early on in my life, even as a, an unbeliever, I saw how, uh, in particular, like when it came to video games. You know, when you're a kid, like, you want the newest, greatest system with the newest, greatest game. And uh, quite early on, I caught on to this system and how we couldn't afford the newest and greatest. And so, in return, instead of being upset about that, I realized it's pointless because in a year, it will be, there'll be another new thing, another new thing. And so, you know, even now, 
um, you know, just because the world wants something, I in no way feel obligated to have to have something, uh, you know, and that really just comes from, uh, you know, being content in what God has given me uh, and how he's blessed me in ways and how he's kept me from having things um i feel like if i god knows what i would do if i were in a situation to have a bunch of money and so i'm thankful that for whatever reason he hasn't given me a bunch of money um but in the perspective of others i probably do have a lot of money um but uh in my own perspective in my own lifestyle in my own perspective of of what i have and what I need, um, I'm very content in, you know, God's plan for uh, where I live, uh, what I drive, what I wear, um, what I eat, and so, um, you know, the the fruit of that is just not spending a whole lot of money on stuff um, that Matt Chandler says is going to end up in a in a junkyard in 15 years anyway. So. Um, just kind of the mindset that I have. Um, I guess I'm uh, saving up to buy a Hummer, but other than that, uh, that's it. Next question. Number 10. What three attributes of God do you consider most important and why? This is really hard. Um, as I was thinking through this, I was thinking that, and this is, I'm going to try to explain this to the best of my ability, but for me personally, I know I've got a lot about God that I want to know and grow to know more and appreciate, but initially I would say that His holiness, um, I'll just say all three and then explain why, His holiness, His love, and His immutability or His unchangingness. So for me, like, it's very important that God be holy and that He be completely separate from sin and that He be the ultimate being that is perfect because if he isn't then he isn't God and he certainly isn't worth me giving any of my praise or honor to so because God is holy he is separate set apart and he is perfect in all of his ways he's he demands that in his holiness that he be worshiped and so that in a weird way I know it can somewhat sound to some like well that doesn't sound very nice you know his holiness demands our worship but to me, it gives me confidence that I can worship him because he is who he says he is, and he's not some sub-God, and there's something that I have to worry about that's bigger or greater or more holy or more perfect. So his absolute just absoluteness and his perfect um, holiness is so important to me. But the second thing kind of flows out of that is that he's love because, as we know and we've studied before, his holiness demands his justice. So he could be completely and utterly good, um, and, and right to be holy and set apart from sin, and then we come into the picture and mess all that up, and then him say, you know, I'm, I'm, I have to punish sin, and I'm, I'm through with you. Um, but we know that not to be the case in God because he's love, and that he you know, sent his son to do what we could not do and to bring forth in our lives the fruit that we could never bring forth on our own. And so we know the love of God because he sent his son to die for us, and so his love is absolutely important. And then thirdly, I would say his immutability, which goes back to another question, or his just his unchangingness is so important to me because even if he was holy and even if he was loving, if tomorrow 
he could be neither of those or more so than he is yesterday, then I would, I mean, what's the point? Like, what's the point in spending 65 years of my life to worship a God who's holy and loving to only fear that at age 67, he decides he's not going to be that anymore. Then my whole life's wasted, you know, but I have confidence knowing that I can give and serve a God and in light of what he's done for me, because he will not change. He will endure. His word remains forever. And I was reading something by a guy that was actually really interesting where he says, this is why the lost hate God so much because they have enemies that are strong, but they might can be weakened or they have guys that they have enemies that, that know things, but they might could be fooled. But God is the ultimate enemy in their case that can never be fooled. He can never be weakened. He never changes. And so the something that kind of gives me the most confidence in is what in some ways drives the lost the most crazy. So that would say, or kind of the most important three, but I would kind of throw in there that he's never, um, they're not kind of different aspects to him. He's not 25% holy and 25%, you know, this and this. Like he's all of these at all times. And so I can't really fully understand how that works itself out, but we know that to be true. Next question. What proof could you offer someone that Jesus rose from the dead? You need to read your Bible. And, uh, no. Um, so, I mean, it's obviously a tricky question because none of us were there. And none of us can say, this is what happened. None of us are eyewitnesses. Um, so, proof that I would go back to is, um, would be, number one, the evidence that there was no body because the Pharisees, if there was a body, would have just simply pulled the body out and said, okay, all of you disciples, all these people who are following Christ saying that he's risen from the dead, here it is. Like, this is his body, still dead. Would have been easily, it would have been easy to quench what was happening, you know, with Pentecost and all the other followers of Christ who were boldly standing up, um, proclaiming that Christ was risen from the dead, if there was, in fact, a body for them to just say, here's the body, like, cut it out, you know, and we'll kill the rest of you, too. Um, so since that didn't happen, since there was no body to be found and the Pharisees weren't able to do that, you know, that's for one evidence that there was no body that Christ did come back from the dead. Secondly would be the fact that there was a dramatic change in the disciples. Um, you know, Peter, for instance, um, is questioned in the courtyard while Jesus is in with the Sanhedrin being questioned. He's, Peter's questioned by a servant girl, uh, two servant girls and then a group of people outside the uh, courtyard. Anyways, they say, weren't you one of the ones who were with Jesus? You know, your voice, your accent deceives you. Like, I know you were one of them. And three times he says, I have no idea what you're talking about. Leave me alone. Get out of here. I don't know the guy. But after that, um, after Jesus is resurrected, he presents himself before the disciples, before 500 people. Peter then turns into this gospel-proclaiming... Um, you know, uh, just very uh, courageous um, disciple that was totally different from who he was. And so the fact that the man who was fearful of his life before now has no fear of death and is willing to even say that, is willing to even um, accuse the Sanhedrin, the, the religious leaders, of killing Jesus before them would stand there and not be fearful of dying himself as evidence 
to me and to the rest of us that Peter saw a resurrected Savior. He saw a resurrected Jesus. Um, and so, um, you know, we can put our confidence in that. Um, and then, um, thirdly, I would say, I guess there's evidence for me that uh, there's no possibility that the disciples would have stolen his body, which is what some people claim, that simply the disciples came in afterwards and stole Jesus' body and then said that uh, Jesus has rose, had rose from the dead, which would have been impossible because if you go back and read the account, um, the religious le leaders asked Pilate to put uh, a Roman guard at the temple because they anticipate that that's what the disciples will do, that they'll steal his body. So it would have been impossible for the disciples to show up, be you know ninja-like, and get you know behind the Roman guards and very quietly roll the stone away, very quietly take the body out, very quietly roll the stone back. Um, just the fact that God ordained that the Roman guard would be placed there reinforces the fact that the disciples didn't steal Jesus' body. Um, that 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 what happened was Jesus came back from the dead, um, and he's alive uh, to this very day. So there are a lot of other components that we could say. We go back to the 500 witnesses that saw Jesus um, who were alive, um, and you know just the other examples of the change that happened in the disciples' lives from what they were before and their understanding of Jesus being an earthly king to now you know the, the letters that, uh, that we can read from some of them and even Paul that have the mindset of Jesus being uh, an eternal king and a heavenly king and how their perspective was changed because they saw a resurrected Christ. So. Let's do one more question for each of them. So if you were thinking about asking one, now's your time. Yeah. Okay. Well, honestly, I would hope that the majority of the men here um, would feel a calling towards leadership in some way. Uh, maybe not necessarily an elder, um, but that each one of them would feel uh, a sense of, I want to lead. Um, I, you know, I'm either leading my family or one day I want to be a good leader of my family. And because of that, I also want to lead um, in the aspect of a local church. Um, but if someone were to come to me and say, hey, um, you know, I feel a calling to be an elder uh, one day, what advice do you have for me? It would be um, just simply to uh, be faithful to, um, I guess, to to continue to, to grow um, in, I guess, just your knowledge, but also in how you take that knowledge and apply it to your life. Um, for me, that has been something that's been huge. And me getting to the point to where I am is not only just knowing things to know them, um, 
because there's no fruit that comes from that. But knowing things and then taking those things and trusting them and desiring to live them out, which is hard. Um, and it's meant to be hard uh, because um, that's where the discipline comes into play and that's where the being a model for others comes into play is really digesting the knowledge that you get from God's word um, and wrestling with it and making it your own and making it true about yourself. Um, I still have many things to, to learn and to wrestle with and I look forward to those times as tough as they may be. Um, but if at a younger age I would have learned to do that sooner, how much more further in my sanctification would I be today, you know? Um, and how much more useful of a vessel would I be uh, as an elder, uh, as a husband, as a father, as a co-worker, in all the areas of my life. So I hope that every guy here feels a call to lead in some capacity, to be an example in some capacity, not in a prideful sense, but in a follow me as I follow Christ mentality, as Paul said, um, and seek to, make the, seek to make true what you're learning. Um, because it's very easy for us to come and listen and just be hearers of the word, but not doers. Um, and that's where the tricky part and, and, and the part that, you know, really uh, produces sanctification in our life um, comes into play. Um, so it seems simple, but I mean, that's really the best place to start um, and the best place to stay, you know, um, as you continue to grow and hopefully as you just continue to um, follow that calling that you feel that you have, you know. So, was that um, acceptable? Good. Anybody got a final question for Tyson? Either one of your own or one from the list? Dave? Twenty-six. What does it mean for an individual to love God, and how is a love for God demonstrated in your own life? Okay. Um, I think what we do know from Scripture is that Jesus makes it clear that you know the New Testament is all about love. You know, when you love God and love other people, um, you fulfill all of the law. And so I think when he was explaining that too, he he also brought up the fact that like if we love Him, we'll obey His commandments. So there's this duty aspect, and I'm going to sound like Piper a lot here in what we've been reading, um, but there is this duty aspect that kind of shows our affection to God that we, tre we, we do love you and we want to show you that in some ways by obeying your commands and obeying what you've, you've asked us to do and, and told us to do because we believe. We believe your promises and we believe that this is for our good and it's used to display your glory, and so we want to be obedient. So I can demonstrate love for God as the follow-up question in my own life by seeking to be obedient to the things that I know is his revealed will in scripture and seek to order my life around um, wisdom in the ways that aren't necessarily revealed in scripture and 
and really seek to be an obedient person. But I think that's only half of it. I think as Piper brings up, there's this immeasurably important aspect of treasuring. So there's this duty and delight. Um, And so this is um, what's a lot less tangible and able to put our hands on is how do we delight in God and what does it mean or look like to delight in God. And, And that's something that he shows is not something that you really manufacture on your own because it's something that just comes up. It, it springs up from a, from a heart that's enjoying something, much like when you're at a football game and you love what's going on and somebody does something, you just stand up and scream like, this is the appropriate outworking of something that I just am loving. And I never had to try to force myself to have <clears throat> affections for Sarah. It was really natural. So there's lots of uh, earthly examples that we have that kind of can show that um, God's really interested in us delighting in him so much as to where, like we know, Piper says, you know, that he's most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. So the whole duty and delight thing I taught on when we were talking about 2 Corinthians back at the Froom and Sasser, I remember teaching, and we were talking about the way that we're supposed to be giving our money, and we use the example out of the chapter that's coming up in Desiring God where the guy brings his wife flowers, and she's like, oh, you shouldn't have, and he was like, well, it was, it's my duty. And he's like, well, that's, that's true. As a husband who cherishes your wife, like to do things that would be good for her, that is your duty. But nobody does that. Nobody says that. And how unaffectionate is that to hear that? So he was like, but swap it around, like to have the husband come and say, like, I, I got you these flowers because I want to sh- just want to demonstrate through these things that I just cherish you and I treasure you and I love you. Even though that is his duty, at the same time, he is overshadowing that with his delight for her. And so I think kind of going back to your original question, when we obey God's commands, that's definitely one way. But when we seek to treasure him above all other things in our life, and that's the challenge, is to say no to the things of this world and to demonstrate a love for God that's greater than the things of this world. Um, As we spend time in his word and as we come to know and study him more, we will come to have more greater affections for him. But that balance will hopefully become more true on the Mary side of it in the story of like Mary and Martha. Martha's like serving Jesus. I got to clean this. And Mary's like, I'm sitting at his feet and just treasuring him. Well, I'm definitely like the, the Martha. Like I want to serve Jesus. I want to obey his commands. I want to do this. But even the point of that story was like, look, you're missing out. Like Mary's the one that's treasuring me. So lastly is a, like you said, how does, it, how does that work itself out in my life? I'm, I pray for that. I, and it sounds weird to say, Lord, help me love you more, because I know if I, if I asked Sarah to help me love her more, it would sound like I don't love her. But as Piper has penetrated my mind many years ago, when we come to God, who is the ultimate and only ability or giver of the ability for us to love him, it's very good for us to admit, like, God, sometimes we don't love you as much as we want, as much as we should, but we're asking you to increase in us an affection for you. And when we do, we'll truly worship. And when we truly worship the kind of the response of that worship will come out in the way that we sing, the way that we live our lives, the way that we read scripture, and the way that we obey the duty aspect of it. So I am seeking to pray that that would become more true of me each and every day. Um, and honestly, it he's faithful in that. I mean, I'm, I'm sad to say that this doesn't happen every day, but I remember a specific time that I stopped what I was doing and I was overcome with a love for God at that I just said, God, I just... I love you, and I genuinely mean that. And unfortunately, that doesn't happen all the time because you're so distracted. 
Um, but I pray that that is more true for me. All right. Um, like I said, we'll produce kind of a written version of, of the questions that we weren't able to get to for you guys to reflect on. The next immediate step is we're going to be having their wives and then some people outside of our church fill out a questionnaire about Adam and Tyson's qualifications for this position. So we're going to be inquiring from their employers about their work ethic and, and things that they notice on the job. Um, so bringing some outside sources, outside opinions into um, their qualifications. So we've already got that questionnaire typed up. We'll be submitting that. And um, then we'll present to you guys copies of the results of that um, so you can kind of get some insight from others' perspectives on both the qualifications of Adam and Tyson for this position uh, within our church. So uh, hopefully today's been encouraging for you to hear from them, get a little bit more insight into their desire to be in this position for our church um, moving forward. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.